This episode of The Ride is brought to you by Weaver Leather. Choosing a new cinch can be a daunting task. With so many shapes, styles, and features on the market, how do you know which one to choose? This Synergy Airflex cinch has many benefits for horses, from competition to trail riding. Backed by a no-risk 90-day test ride guarantee, you can't go wrong trying out the Airflex cinch. Designed with cool flex foam and airflow channels, this is a great fit for horses of all backgrounds and disciplines to keep them cool and comfortable. Learn more about Airflex cinches by visiting www.ridethebrand.com slash exclusives slash Airflex. This is Nicole speaking, and I am here with my co-host, Jillian Sinclair, and today we are interviewing Richard Winters, who is probably a very common name that you have heard over the years. He is a Cal Horse World Champion, a Road to the Horse Champion, among other things. He's also a producer of a champion with his daughter, Sarah Dawson, cleaning up in the Cal Horse right now. Um, but thank you so much for coming on and talking with us, Richard. We're so excited to learn more about your story and, and kind of get to know who you are as a person. Oh, well, Nicole, Jillian, thank you very much. I've been looking forward to this interview. And needless to say, Horse and Rider magazine has been such a player in the industry for decades now. So I appreciate you giving me the time of day. Absolutely. Well, let's kick this thing off with getting to know a little bit about you. Um, Let's let's start from the beginning. Why not? Um, how did you even get involved with the horses to to begin with, and kind of you know go in this journey to becoming the the professional that you are today? Yeah. Well, yeah. Needless to say, everybody has a story and everybody has a different pathway. But I think I was a little bit of an anomaly and broke the stereotype because so oftentimes it's little girls and horses, huh? Is how that deal goes. Because I have a sister, and it's just two of us in our family, and she never cared a thing about horses, and I never thought about anything other than horses. I never wanted to be a policeman or a fireman or an astronaut. I just wanted to be a cowboy or a horseman if I even knew what that was. But we lived in town. My dad was a preacher. My mom was a nurse, and they didn't know anything about horses. And I pedaled my bicycle seven miles from our house in Fresno, California, as often as I could, as many days of the week as I could, to be a proverbial stable brat at, a, at an old-fashioned stable that was there. It was kind of a hunter-jumper barn, but they had a dude string of western horses, and I would just hang out there and in the early 70s. It was $2.50 to ride a horse for an hour, but I would plan my whole Saturday around that one hour that I could afford to ride. And after a period of time, the old man that ran the dude string let me start helping saddle up the horses. And and then I'd, I'd get there early and harness up the, the workhorse that uh, fed all the horses around the stable. And so that was really my first introduction to just being able to be around them. And my mom would say, why, why do you hang out there all day? Now, I don't remember saying this, but she claims that I did. And she says, what do you do there all day? And I said, I, I just like to smell the smells. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I was just that little boy that uh, has always loved horses that kind of had to beat it out of the rock. Uh, 
but but that was my start and then through junior high and high school I had the opportunity to go up into the mountains below Yosemite, California, and wrangle dude horses there each summer. Kind of got me out of that San Joaquin Valley heat and uh, and gave me more experience with horses. And then in high school, I went to a uh, – it was kind of a county-run vocational school, but they had one for horse shoeing. And uh, I went for nine months and became a certified farrier, and I went to work for a horse trainer. Uh, during that time, I remember knocking on his door and saying uh, – Hey, Mr. Henry, I hear you're looking for a colt starter, and I think I'm your man. I'm like 15, you know. <laughs> I was clueless. Uh, he had a, a very big business there and lots of kids going to shows and things like that. And so I cleaned a lot of st- stalls and swept a lot of tack rooms and saddled a lot of horses, but that was my first introduction to h- higher levels of horsemanship, the psychology of horsemanship rather than just get to go and pull to stop. Uh, so that was a great opportunity, and then I went off to college to rodeo a little bit, uh, a lot of fun, but I wasn't any good at it, and uh, and have never done anything else. So when I met my lovely bride, my business cards said farrier on them. I was shoeing a lot of horses around that country, but it was a great segue into the horse community. And then Susie Q had a horse that she hadn't ridden in a while, so well, I'll ride him for a month. And, and so then the training deal got busier, and and then I had the opportunity, uh, I think I taught my first horsemanship clinic over 30 years ago when that was still kind of a new thing. Um, and so rode that wave of horsemanship clinics over the years. And So anyway, that's Richie Winter right there in a nutshell. <laughs> I love it. Um, I, you know, it's really always fascinating to me. We, we do a lot of these interviews, and I've talked to quite a few people that have that same kind of background where – their parents didn't come from the horse industry. You know, there there really is no reason that they should have ended up in the industry, but they did, and they fell in love with it. And, and coming, you know, I come from Chicago, actually, so I, I understand being around a lot of people who aren't familiar with the horse industry or, or understand what we do. And and uh, But it's, it's so cool to hear how somebody whose family wasn't necessarily in the horse industry somehow ended up getting involved and and i would say that you were you know a very very iconic horseman and clinician over the years so i it's such just such a cool story well and what do you girls think is it, i don't know what other vocation or hobby is, is like this but in the horse thing it's almost like there's something genetically in you it's a bug that you have and maybe you have to leave it for 20 years or whatever but you've got that bug and then your your full sibling does not have that bug. Totally. I don't care anything about it. Um, and so I mentioned me and my sister, how she never thought anything about it. And then our kids are the stereotype. We have two children, 15 months apart. And our boy, he rode as a kid, but he had no passion for it. Um, and he's gone on and done other great things. But of course, my little girl, that's all she's ever thought about and, uh, and been a rider. So yeah, it'd be curious to hear of somebody that, I don't know if they're a a skier or I don't know, whatever it might be, is is there that is there a parallel there? But I've never really heard of it like it is in the horse thing. Absolutely. No, it, does, it takes a special person to, to do the horses. And, and I also come from a family. My mom had horses, so that's how I got involved. But my sister has nothing to do with the equine industry. She showed a little bit as a kid, but it was never her passion in life. And, and then there's me who – literally just works in the industry, has a two-year-old horse, going to horse shows on the weekend. Like, I'm, you know, it's all I talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. I get it. I don't think there's a sport 
comparable to the horse industry. And I just, I can't think of one where you have to have so much dedication and drive and passion to be successful in it. It's not really something that you can just kind of have as a part-time hobby. Um, so I think that that's probably where a lot of people will fall out of it. You know, if they, they might be like, oh, riding horses is fun. But if they're not out there every day, week cleaning stalls, you know, they're not really going to be immersed into it the way that the people who are really passionate about it will. I think so. It, it is such a huge commitment. You know, as you mentioned, uh, even if you're not riding, you still got to go out and take care of that horse. If, if you're into dirt bikes and you don't feel like it, you just park it in the garage. And then some weekend when you feel like it, you get on your dirt bike. Uh, but, but horses, it's all consuming. And maybe that weeds out the people that are not really that serious about it. There's just kind of a, a casual pastime. But for folks like you ladies and myself and thousands of others that we know, um, we're just, yeah, we're willing to do it on super hot days, on super cold days. Uh, they're going to be a part of our lives. Absolutely. Uh, I totally agree. I mean, I'm at the barn every day. If it's negative 20 out, I have to go and feed <laughs> and make sure that the water's not frozen. You know, I'll make sure the blankets are on. And, yeah, no, it's it's not something that you can just, not do and and when you go on a vacation you have to make sure that the horses are taken care of and you have a plan and and there's a lot that goes into it so yeah I, I think it is something that really requires a passion and a love for to really be successful in it um but you had mentioned a little bit about how you kind of got into the horse show side of things working with people kind of learning a little bit more about that how did you find your way into the cow horse? I know you're from California, and that's kind of the birthplace of cow horse. So I would imagine that you were probably around it a little more than, say, someone like me who was in Chicago. Right. Uh, you know, and I have often said that I'm, I didn't realize it at the time, but how thankful I am now that I grew up on the West Coast and had the opportunity to be around great horses and great horsemen and horsewomen where that was kind of, that was that was the norm. That was that that was the expectation of, of of horsemanship. And I mean, it was years before I could even think about duplicating any of it. But uh, to have that standard early on that just set the tone for the rest of my life. That's where I'm headed. And when I had the privilege of working for that gentleman, he is now since deceased. But uh, Troy Henry and some of the old timers know of him. Uh, he was just a great horseman. And to, at 15, 16, 17 years of age, able to get on horses, that when you picked up on those bridle reins, those horses got soft and said, yes, sir, what can I do for you? Or to, to lope them down there and say, whoa, and they actually use their hawks and get stopped or work a cow. And, wow, this is possible with horses. And so it just caused me for the next 30 years not to be satisfied with anything less. But, you know, I got – busy trying to make a living as i mentioned i was shoeing horses and the training deal got busy and then the whole clinic thing and and my clinics even today they're not filled with cow horse non-pro riders they're just filled with people who want to get along better with their horse so i found my niche there but still for me and my own personal horsemanship experience and my own professional development i've been striving to get better and so it was about 20 years ago that I really got in a spot where I could have a little better quality horse, maybe go out and show a little bit and and get some people that could help me. Uh, so I've been able to do that because in all reality, when I go to a clinic, I am probably the best horseman 
on the whole showgrounds. There's probably nobody there any better than me because everybody's come to my clinic, right? But when I go to a horse show, there's a lot of people that are better than me. You know, you can get to believe in your own press releases and uh, and somebody pats you on the back after the clinic because you got their horse in the trailer and you think you're quite the horseman. But when you have to go out there and compete against world-class riders, that, that brings me back to reality and it causes me to want to be better. Whether you are a horseman or a boxer or a, or a skier or whatever you do, if you want to get better, you got to be around people that are better than you. And it, it's hard to eat that much humble pie, but it, it makes you get better. Uh, it puts that standard out there in front of you. So uh started to show some cow horses um, doing what I'd always only dreamed about as a very young person. And uh, and for me, it's, it's, it is, it's a benchmark of where I'm at uh, rather than just, like I say, believing what I read on my own website. <laughs> I, I had to say too with the cow horse, I've I've had the opportunity to show a bridal horse, and um, yeah, it, it humbles you real fast when that cow doesn't do what you want it to. <laughs> no, I get it. And the cow horse deal, and I mean, my prejudices and biases are going to come out here, but there's there's so many great disciplines, and and I can sit and admire an upper level dressage horse or a cutter or or anything but the cow horses and many of your listeners will already understand this but they are really the triathletes of the deal you can have a world-class rainer and they might not know a cow from a giraffe and you can have a world-class cutting horse and they might not even pick up their right lead and they couldn't change leads to save their life but they can do one thing very very well but these cow horses have to get competent in the raining. They have to get competent in the cutting. They have to do this unique event, event called down the fence where it's uh, a lot of speed and they have to be able to handle that mental pressure. And I tell clients that if you were looking for a horse that you could just go and do anything on, and maybe you were never going to show in the cow horse, you would probably like that, that cow horse better horse that had been there and done that because you're going to be able to open and close the gate. You're going to be able to lope and then slow back down. You're going to be able to go fast and then go slow. You're going to be able to put any part of his body in any given position at any given time, and that's everybody's goal. And so, you know, I just I just love those horses. And, and one more quick analogy about these horses, you know, when we do that big-time fence work and you box them at one end and you run down the fence and, and then you have to circle them up both ways and that, that cow's running fast and you're kicking on your horse to get up there and you're asking for his life, you know, and and then the whistle blows and you're done and I've I've done it many, many times. I've watched thousands of runs and I probably couldn't count on one on one hand the amount of horses that didn't put their head down and walk out of the arena like a dude horse. And there are so many horses that well, they seem kind of quiet and gentle, but if if you kick them in the belly and gallop them down the road, they might be hyped up and nervous for the next 45 minutes. But these horses are so great uh, that they can just handle that those slow things. They can handle those fast things. As I mentioned, the, the mental pressure uh, has been applied, and they passed that test. So, yeah, I like the cow horses. I certainly do. <laughs> I'm with you there, too. I'm trying to get Jillian. Jillian and I both come from the all-around world, and Jillian still competes in it, and I'm – I, my goal is to put her on a cow horse because I want to get her addicted to this sport too. Because the first time I rode a bridal horse, 
you know, I was, I was really fortunate. I rode a two time world champion stud and, and I was just like, Oh, this is cool. Like, oh yeah. Right. <laughs> and then I went down the fence for the first time with the help of Brad Bargemeyer, who I, you know, I'm so thankful for because he just lets me hop on horses and, and ride with him. And oh, when yeah. I'm in town and I went down the fence that first time and I was just like, Oh, now I know why people do this. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I first started with Horse and Rider a year ago today, actually, I was like, nah, I'm never going to be interested in that. You know, like, I'll only, I only like the all around. And now here I am a year later. And I'm like, I don't know. That was really, really fun. And I agree that it's so interesting to me how versatile they are, the cow horses are, which I never realized that before I learned more about it. And that's something that has always been something that I really, could admire about horses and this the training that goes into it is how they have to be able to do so many different things so you know you you work with so many different people and horses from so many different backgrounds and I feel like you've kind of seen it all almost so what would be some advice that you know you could give to someone that either would be a clinic attender or you know just anyone really that has stuck with you over the years like that you would think that every person should know that is a horse person. Mm-hmm. Well, we could go a thousand different directions here, but uh, I play guitar a little bit, and uh, and you can go ahead and capitalize the words a little bit. Uh, I learned how to play <laughs> the guitar when I was 15 years of age. Somebody showed me about three chords, and and I still play the guitar today, but I don't play a lot different now than when I was 15. Someone said, Richard, I don't know anybody that's played the guitar as long as you have played and improved as little as you have improved. Uh, And so people that come to horsemanship clinics, and I'm thankful for those that are repeat attenders and come again and again, but I encourage them, hey, we need to get better at this. If you come and ride with me again in five years, I hope that you can see in me an improvement. Wow, Richard's gotten better in the last few years. If I thought I was going to be the same horseman five years from now that I am today, I would be a discouraged little puppy. Uh, So just to to just do the same things over again and not get any better, uh, I know everybody has different goals and not everybody's going to be a professional or whatever, and nobody has to do it like I do it. But but we've got a horse there that has so much potential and capability, whether he ever goes to the show pen or not, we could do so much more. And so let me just simplify this this answer way, way down. What what would I tell people? Ride your horse. Ride your horse. Because I have people, they they love their horse. They take care of their horse. They pay all the expenses of a horse. They'll show you pictures of on their phone of their horse. But when you pin them down as to how much they really ride them, uh, sometimes not too much. My horse is out here, you know, if if I missed a couple of days, I say, hey, Richard, is he sick? What's the matter? Or somebody comes to a clinic and I help them lope around a little bit, and, or maybe their horse won't lope around. So, well, let me get on him, and, and I get him lined out and going. I lope him around for a few minutes, and I will tell him, I say, you know what? I don't know this person that well, and I don't know this horse, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I bet it's true. I bet I have just loped this horse more in the last five minutes than this horse has loped in the last six months. Because... People say they ride them, but they don't really ride them. You know, you just got to get out 
and and do it and spend that time. Uh, if we had a golf cart or a motorbike, it's all right to leave it parked for a few days or a few weeks. And people wonder with that lack of consistency why their horse is so inconsistent and why. And they say, well, I'd lope him more. I would lope him if he loped like your horse. Well, he's not going to lope like my horse until you lope him more. Uh, but they stay away from it, and then it just becomes more and more of a problem. As I've traveled around the country, I recognize that there's some regions where actually riding is a seasonal deal, and you can only do what you can do. You know, if you get weathered out and and there's no covered pen or everything's iced over, I understand. I've never had that problem because of the places that I've lived, and I think that even if I had that problem, I'd work it out. But that's my advice to people. There's Go ahead and watch videos, you know, uh, attend clinics, uh, read magazines, but ultimately you got to get out and ride them. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's it, – it's, it's amazing when people are like, well, I would ride my horse if it, if it looked like that, and you're sitting there going, yeah, but he didn't like – I didn't throw a saddle on him for the first time, and he came out looking like this. Like there's, you know, there's yeah. hundreds of hours put into getting my horse to the point to where he is going around like this, and it and it takes consistency and time and patience and all those things. And and like you kind of mentioned, a lot of your people, you know, they may not show, and and they don't have to have a, a cow horse that can do three different events well. But you know, there's so many things that you can do with your horse, and there's so many things that your horse should do regardless on if you ever set foot in a show pen. And I think it's so important that people try to be the best horseman they can be, even if they never have a goal of going into the show pen. Oh, that that's right. Uh, you know, we talk so much about showing, but that's just something that some people decide to do. Uh, if I never showed a horse again, I would still have expectations for my horses, and I would still want to see them advance and you know why am i still feeding third grade work to a horse that should be in in sixth grade well he's going to be bored too you know i'm getting a little bored and he's getting a little bored where there's so much more potential there and so i don't need that much body control i'm not showing him well you're walking down a little steep trail there's a drop off wouldn't it be nice if you could just put your leg on that rib cage and the horse would move over to the bank rather than uh pushing into your leg and his and his hind end starting to step off the uh, embankment so you know that body control that ultimate control of our horse is important for everybody regardless of what they do that is so true i think that's such a good example like you said with with the trail horses you know even if they're not going to go in the show pen and do a pattern or whatever kind of class it's still important for them to know how to do that so how did you get started with the clinics and you know how did you kind of make that your your niche yeah um well again it was i think 31 years ago that i did my first clinic and i remember it because uh our son is 31 it seemed like he was just a very tiny baby that we went out there that day but to back up when i worked for that trainer that i mentioned in clovis california there was an another young man in that country that was trying to train horses and he was starving to death and he i mean he was 10 years my senior so i was what 15 he was 25 and the gentleman i was working for was semi-retired so he had this huge stable but had some empty stalls and so worked out a deal with this young man where he could lease some stalls well that young man's name was pat perelli which many of your listeners would know you know, he's gone on and built this built this huge empire in the horse industry for the last 30 years. But this was before he ever did a horsemanship clinic or anything like that. He was just trying to train horses. So him and I rode under this individual 
for the next couple of years, and then we both moved away, but we kept in contact, and he always had this idea of doing horsemanship clinics and having instructors and all this business. And so I would go, as Pat was putting together his clinics early on, and help and assist him. And so I've got to give credit to him. You know, people either love Pat Pirelli or they, they hate him, you know, uh, but hats off to him for building the, the empire that he did. And he opened up a lot of doors for me early on and, and helped me uh, kind of put some meat on the bones uh, with my clinics because I found that I could have a bunch of horses in training, but I can only ride one at a time. Uh, and there was just from a business standpoint, there wasn't that way to, to multiply yourself. But if I could do a clinic and have 10 people in the arena that have all paid a few bucks to be there, and now I can share my information with all 10 of them. And one thing that I think helped me, I had a certain amount of horsemanship skill early on, but I was also trying to learn how to work with people and explain things in a way that people can understand and to help people not feel stupid when they came to a horsemanship clinic and to affirm what they are doing and help them make progress. I, I can say I'm in the horse business all day long. Any of us can. But in all reality, I'm in the people business. Because horses don't write checks. People do. And so I think it was that ability to have a certain amount of horsemanship skill and then a certain amount of, of, of people skills and, and learning how to communicate, uh, I think, was huge. Because some people are good communicators and some people are good horsemen. But sometimes they don't have both. And I think if you're going to do the clinic deal, uh, having both is, is very, very helpful. And everybody learns a different way. And there are some people that come to my clinics again and again and again because I think they like my teaching style. But I know other people, they don't come to me to my clinics, but they're like groupies at this other guy's clinic. So there's something about his or her teaching style that resonates with them. Uh, so there's room for all of us out there, but it, it has been a great opportunity for me and my wife and raising our family. We've traveled all over the country and all over the world. We've been to crazy places in this world on somebody else's dime just to share our horsemanship knowledge, things that we never would have gotten the opportunity to do, uh, people that we never would have had the opportunity to meet. So I'm very thankful for that. There are other guys that for the last 20 years, they just focused on showing cow horses, and those are the guys that beat me today because they they put their focus there. So I'm, I feel like I'm playing catch-up a little bit uh, in this last decade or two. But, but I've got no regrets. It's, it's been a great thing. So that's kind of how we got started. And I'm thinking, although the clinics are still good and, and we're heading off to California on Monday to go do 10 days of clinics there, uh, I wouldn't want to start my clinic thing today. It seemed like I caught that wave when it was fresh and building and getting stronger. And, um, and now, you know, there's so much technological information for people uh, to glean. And, again, they still come to clinics, but maybe it's backed off just a little bit, you know, in these last few years. So that's what we've been doing. That's interesting. I guess I didn't um... – you know, I, I, I didn't realize that you're seeing kind of like a a plateau with the clinics. And, and you're right, though. There is a lot of information out there and, and a lot of websites and a lot of Facebook pages and a lot of videos. And um, But I think the clinics are, are so important. And I know that I have learned, um, I have learned, you know, over the years that 
a lot of people that are in these clinics don't necessarily have access to a trainer 24-7. You know, their horses are at home. They're in a boarding yep. barn. And, and the people that do attend those clinics are so thirsty for knowledge that I, you know, we talk to a lot of horse trainers, and their whole job is, is showing cow horses or rainers or cutters. But I think, you know, it's so important to remind people that, like, these clinics are, are the p- way to reach the masses of horse owners because they don't have access to the top, you know, cow horse guys or, or you know, spending $150,000 on a, on a sample bit prospect or whatever. And, and so I, I think it's huge. I love the clinics. I still, you know, I, I work with a lot of people and I still try and find time to go to clinics because there's just so much you can learn from so many people. I, you know, I, I think that is very true. And, as far as the clinic thing is concerned, uh, I I tell people that, uh, you know, you should come to that clinic and, you know, put aside your ego for a little bit. And, you know, you're, I remember a young guy that uh, used to work for me, and we were going to go off and see Tom Dorrance uh, and do a clinic. And we were talking about the horses we were going to take with us. And he said, well, we should take the worst ones. Why would we take the best ones? Let's take the ones we're having all the trouble with, you know. But uh, but even me, I didn't want to go there and, and feel stupid or, or whatever. Uh, but I think my particular niche in the clinic thing in the last 10-plus years, as people have been to a lot of clinics, and they, they say, well, okay, are we going to do anything new? Are we going to do anything different at the clinic? Or are we just going to teach them how to not walk over the top of us and, and how to lunge and load in the trailer? With me having modest success in the show pen, I have tried to bridge the gap between, this is just for lack of a better term, what the natural horsemanship thing is in the clinics with performance horsemanship uh, in the show pen. And because there's actually some clinicians that almost act like those things are mutually exclusive, that they can't, they can't be joined. There is no bridge that brings them together. But for me, I have found that the principles that I've been applying, good solid horsemanship, apply in little league, they apply in the minor leagues, and they apply in the major leagues. And so people are coming to my clinics, and I'm helping them maybe get a little more refinement, a little more collection, a little more athleticism, a little more performance from their horse, uh, rather than just going around and doing the same old thing. So that's how I think I've kind of kept my clinic thing alive and, and fresh. Uh, and it makes it more interesting for me because I'm able to go out there and teach things that I am interested in, the same things that I'm working on on my own horses uh, I can share with people at that clinic. And certainly you get people of all experience levels, and sometimes you got to go to the lowest common denominator and help that, that horse and rider, and that's all cool. But there are some people that they can go out there and lope circles in a group of riders, and, and the horse does stop and back up, and they can get them to move off their leg a little bit. But they're saying, hey, what? What's next? What's next? And how can I, uh, you know, take my horse to the next level? So we call them advancing clinics, and and it's just it's been a pretty good niche for us. I really like that. Um, you you kind of mentioned being able to apply the the performance horse industry kind of philosophies with your natural horsemanship philosophies, and and I'm I'm huge on that because I think there is something that we can take away from from all of this. And uh, you mentioned kind of tying in some of your your performance work stuff in those clinics. Are you doing like flag work with these people, like cow work stuff, or, or what's uh, what kind of performance aspects are you tying in? 
And depending on the clinic format, we might do those things and more, but probably the the foundation of these clinics is going to be a series of body control exercises that I do because anybody can come to a clinic and say, I want to, I want to be able to do flying lead changes. I want my horse to turn around. I want my horse to stop better. But they don't have any body control. And I remember years ago, I was in Klamath Falls, Oregon. I went to a less vote clinic, and he had a little series of exercises that we did there for our horse's head and neck and then their shoulders and their rib cage and their hind end. And it, like, blew me away. It, and it's changed everything for me because I can dream of these maneuvers, but until I can do it, you know, why would I have somebody run through the middle and try to change leads if they can't move their shoulders over? You know, if, if their horse turns their face upside down when they pick up on the reins or if they can't get their hip back the other way. And so we spend a majority of the clinic working on, I call it, four-part harmony. I liken it unto singing that if you had a, a four-part harmony group and the song didn't sound right, you desperately need a director to find out where the problem was. These three guys know their part, but this guy singing over here is, is, does not know his part, so we need to stop, help this guy learn his part, then bring all the guys back together, and the song's going to sound good. And that's the way it is with the lead change or the turnaround. Don't just sing the song ten more times. Figure out, well, no, he's he's got a, a block in his rib cage, or, or the, that hip is flying out. He's coke bottling around. Let's work on that part, and then we can go back and put it together. So after we've gone through those series of exercises, then I don't want to just drive people crazy, and it can be a little boring. I say, okay, well, this is how it applies then to what you ultimately came to the clinic for, to be able to do these higher-level maneuvers. Because I am just like all these people. This is all I want to do in horsemanship. I want to spin them. I want to slide them. I want to do flying lead changes, and I want to work a cow. That's it. Just teach me how to do that. I don't need to know anything else. Well, I've come to find out in the last 20, 30 years, I don't get to do those things unless I know all these other things, how to get control over my horse's body, uh, separating those body parts out. And whether they're going to be a cow horse or a pleasure horse or a trail horse or a ranch horse versatility, that's going to serve them well. And I have ridden with some of the greatest riders in the world, whether I'm one-on-one or a clinic or showing with them or whatever. I've got my little spill of what I call each one of these exercises. These other great riders, they've never heard my spill. They certainly haven't watched my DVD, but they can do it. They can do all of those things. They might call it something different. Mine might be part number two and theirs is part number three, but they can move those body parts around without exception. That is the common denominator whether it's English or Western competitive or just for fun, those people at a higher level, they can move any part of that body into any given position at any given time. And then I will tell people, hey, let's work on these exercises. Let's get them good. And then maybe you're going to have the chance to go ride with Brandon Butters or Les Vote or Sarah Dawson or whoever it is. And maybe you don't understand everything about the game you're fixing to play, but you will have come to class prepared. You, you have brought a horse that they can help you with because you can move those parts around. But if you can't, all those fun things that the instructor wanted to help you with, they can't help you with them. they got to go back to kindergarten with you and say, he's got to move off that leg. He's got, come on there, Freddie. He's got he, to get soft in his face when you pick up on those bridle rays, whatever it might be. So, so that's a large part of what we do at those clinics.
Well, and I think, you know, you mentioned how people just, like, they want to, you know, they want to stop. They want to spin. They want to work a cow. And it's, like, the 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 best of the best aren't even doing that every day. They're working on the fundamentals <laughs> every day. You know, like, I might yeah. – I have a two-year-old rainer. I might stop her a couple of times, you know, but then I'm going to go back to, you know, bending or flexing or moving her off my leg. It, you know, there's so little time is spent on the finished maneuver. It, it's, you know, you go to anybody's house and you're going to see them working on the fundamentals, making sure their horse's body is where they need to be before they even try to turn them or go down the fence or, or what may it be. Right. That is such a great point. Uh, just recently, I was visiting with a guy and he was a high school coach for years and uh, played semi-pro ball. And uh, he heard an interview of a world-class coach that, I don't know for how many years in a row his team won whatever they won. And they asked him, what's, what's the key to the success? How do your players get so good? He said, the success that we enjoyed, it's because every player on my team does the fundamentals really, really well. And I'm thinking, no, I'm going to just, just throw my boy the football and let him run across the goal line. That's what I want to see. That's what's fun. But they're doing these exercises out there that don't don't even look like it has anything to do with winning a football game. But it has everything to do with winning. And so you you are right on the money. It's doing those fundamentals really, really well. And when I go ride with somebody, those are the things we're working on. So at your clinics, do you have different levels or how do you work with when you have some people that you know, have are more advanced and are ready to move past the fundamentals versus the people that are still working on the fundamentals. Yes, and and that's a tricky deal right there. Uh, and I have just worked very hard over the years to bring as much value as I can to everybody that comes to the clinic because they are at different levels. And, you know, I, I loosely say, you know, at my advancing clinics, you need to feel confident, walking and trotting and loping in a group, uh, stopping and backing up, and your horse moves off your leg. And if you feel like you could do that unassisted, then boom, you're ready. But invariably, somebody comes, they're not quite there. Uh, and so I try to assess where everybody is at early on. And I see some clinicians getting in a little bit of a bind of having, seeing the person that has the worst problem. And 75% of the clinic is devoted to them because he's trying to keep them alive, you know. But all the other people who are a little farther along, it's like, ah, uh, they're, they're kind of being left off to the side. So I think it's a skill that has to be acquired to be able to give everybody something, uh, some little thing that they can go on with. Uh, so if I see that person that has brought a nicer horse, they have more understanding, then I'm going to make a little thing out of that. And, hey, now, Susie's got a horse here that I think – I bet she could ride corner to corner and, and do a lead change right on this straight line. We've been talking about simple lead changes all morning, but I want you guys to watch this and then and help Susie set that up in the way that I would envision that that happening. Then she feels good about her experience. The people see what is available to them if they would just keep working on things. Uh, so I, I think if you want to be a successful clinician, it all goes back to being in the people business. You've got to be really aware of that. And I will tell people, I'm going to ramble on here for six hours today and then another six hours tomorrow, and you're not going to get all the stuff that I say. And some of it's going to be over your head, or some of it you're going to think is stupid, and it doesn't even fit you. Uh, I get it. But if you can leave this clinic with one or two 
you or can you imagine three things that resonate with you, three things that you're going to incorporate into your program? I don't want you to come back six months from now and be a cookie cutter of Richard Winters, but if years from now you're helping somebody with their horse and you say, you know what, I saw this at a Richard Winters horsemanship clinic. It was just one thing that really, really made sense to you. Then your time this weekend is, has been well spent. And that's how I look at every time I load up my horses and go ride with someone who I admire. Uh, I can't be them. And they're saying things that are sometimes, eh, I don't get it. But so many times I've driven away and said, wow, that thing right there. In fact, if you pin me down, almost everything that I tell people and show them, if, if I thought about it long enough, I could probably tell you the person I stole it from. Uh, we're not reinventing anything here, uh, but I like to – think that I'm the product of the many great horsemen and women that I've had the privilege of being around over the years, and I think that's what all of us should aspire to. I, I totally agree, and, and like you said, you know, a, a lot of people are doing the same thing, and we're, we're by no means reinventing the wheel when we're telling people how to do things, but I think it's also important because some people are really great at explaining things and, and maybe even understand this simple fundamental when you were working with this horse trainer, but then they go to your clinic and, and the way that you explain it, it's just like a light bulb goes off and, and they finally, you know, are able to understand it. So I, I love that, you know, there's so many people out there that have so many different ways of getting to the final product. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's why not, not everybody needs to come to the Richard Winters horsemanship clinic. It just doesn't quite, fit them. doesn't make me a bad clinician and doesn't make them a bad rider, but they can find somebody where where it would resonate with them and would make a difference. And and so I would just encourage people like you do to get out there and, and experience everything you can. And you don't have to, as we said, you don't have to go and be just like them. And there might have been some things that uh, you disagreed with, but there might be something. There's always something that you can glean or get a hold of. And, you know, I'll just mention too, I've I've had to smile over the years. Say I go ride with somebody, could be one of my kids, could be another great horseman or horsewoman out there, and I'm having a little trouble with something, and they'll tell me something. And I, I've told this to them afterwards. I said, that's the exact same thing I've been telling that middle-aged woman who has that backyard over overweight horse that came to my clinic last week, and I told her the exact same thing, but it was just at a different level. Nothing changes. The principle's are all the same. It's like, I know this. So what I'm teaching people in the minor leagues, I need to take that and apply it in a major league. It's, it, the fundamentals don't change. It's still a matter of being able to, to hit that ball or, or keep your elbows straight when you're swinging the club or whatever it might be. So, so many times I've seen that true and just makes me a little frustrated at myself, but, uh, but it just shows the continuity of the horsemanship fundamentals that need to be there. Well, and I, I think it also shows that, like, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've won, what you've done over the years, we can always learn and we can always progress. And and you're never going to be perfect when it comes to these horses. That would just be too boring, right? Oh, my goodness. This is, it takes a lifetime to figure this out. And and you ladies sound a little younger than me. I'm running out of time. i got to get get the lead out here uh, because it it's not something that you master in a, in a few months or years. Well, I got that. It's it just goes on and on. And on the side of my trailer, it says, enjoy the journey. And the story behind that is we're never going to get to the destination. We're never going to get there uh, because there's, there's just always something else to learn, another level of horsemanship to attain. And so 
We need to enjoy the progress that we're making, enjoy the moments that we have with our horses and, and the things that we're learning and they're learning. Uh, if you're just going to be frustrated until you get to the, get to the end, there is no end. Got to enjoy the journey. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you work with, I mean, the top, I mean, your, first of all, your daughter is one of the top horsemen in the world, but you've also worked with other horsemen and women who, who have, you know, been a big part of the, the cow horse industry or the reining industry or, or what may it be. Um, do you have any, like, has there any bit, has there ever been any kind of like advice or, or feedback from one that just really stuck with you over the years? Is there anything that you really just like think back on and kind of apply to your everyday riding? Mm. Well, of course, there's there's so much, and they're all just little bits and pieces that fit into the whole. When I when we were in California, I moved to Southern California, and I didn't realize it at first, but then I realized, oh, wow, I only live five miles from Ted Robinson. And for years, he was the man, and he's an icon in the in the cow horse industry. He won the Snapplebit Futurity seven times. Uh, nobody's ever going to do that again. That, that's never going to happen. Uh, and so he was the guy, and he was so gracious. And I probably wouldn't be showing gal, cow horses today had he not, you know, been the help that he had been showing me how to play the game and so patient and, and treated me like a peer when I really was not. Uh, and so hats off to him. Just one funny story that I that I tell about what he told me one time as I'm trying to bump up my game, become more competitive, where for so many years I've I've just helped people just get a, just get along with your horse, you know, and, and present a good deal to your horse and take the fighting and scrapping out of it. Uh and, and that's all well, but I was working a cow down the fence at Ted Robinson's and and trying to get down there and get in position and get the cow turned and uh and then Ted says, Hey, whoa, whoa, pull up, pull up. Richard, come here. <laughs> and uh he said, You know what you look like? I said, What's that? He says, You look like somebody who doesn't want to win anything. <laughs> what? And what he was saying is, Hey, you you can't just play sandlot baseball here. We're not, we're, it's not just patty caking around. You're asking your horses to step up to the plate uh, at a professional level here and just to pony lope around like you do at your clinic. That ain't going to cut it. I'm thinking that if I had a bunch of kids and we were playing t-ball and they were on my team and it was a little hot, I might say, oh, kids, it's hot. Let's, let's just go get a snow cone. But if you're on a major league, major league baseball team and you're getting paid millions of dollars a year, uh, coach might say, you know what, double practices today, boys. You really want to be on this team? And so it, it's taking everything to another level. Uh, and I find myself, even today, I can go do all the maneuvers and, and I compete. Sometimes I do well, sometimes I don't do as well, but I've, I've, I've got to step up my game. And, and there, there's another level of intensity uh, and mental preparedness and athleticism that the horses and riders have who are beating me. And so that always uh, stuck with me over the years. It's kind of funny, but he, he was such a big help. And, you know, anymore, uh, some of my biggest help and, and greatest mentors uh, is my little girl and her husband. Uh, they, they are amazing, and they show me so much. And my son-in-law, Chris, 
And him and his wife are both million-dollar riders in the National Rain Cow Association. That makes me a million-dollar sire. You can go ahead and put that in the footnotes. Uh, but he would – when we moved down here, I would go out and get help from him and say, hey, I'm showing you some things here, but don't don't throw away who you are. You're, you're not going to be Chris Dawson. You're not going to be Sarah Dawson. You're going to be Richard Winters. And if we can show you a technique or a little aid or something you can incorporate into what you're doing, but don't try to do it the way we do it. Uh, that's not going to fit you. It's not going to it's not going to fit well on you. And I thought that was really good advice. He said, "Hey, you've been doing for 30 or 40 years. You've been doing successful things with horses. And I'm not asking you to throw all that away. I'm just giving you little bits and pieces that you can add on to what you're doing so that it becomes uniquely yours. Because I think that you and I and everyone who goes and gets help, we're we're going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be ill." fitting to try to be someone else, to put on someone else. And so of late, I've been thinking of that a lot and applying my own horsemanship principles that have always been important to me, but incorporating some of these new techniques and maybe some things that I haven't thought about uh, and have it fit into what I'm already doing. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up part one of our interview. So stay tuned for part two coming in a couple of weeks. tuning into the ride podcast we hope you enjoyed this episode and please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts follow horse and rider magazine on social media and find us at horseandrider.com if you guys have any questions or comments please be sure to hit us up at horse and rider at equine we want to hear from you guys and if you like what you're listening to be sure to leave us a review on itunes